Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Coronavirus cases are surging across the country. Cities and states are responding with new regulations on social gatherings. But another potential solution is at least on the horizon and maybe a little closer than that. Last week, the drug company Pfizer announced in a press release that its coronavirus vaccine seems to work. According to a preliminary analysis, Pfizer's vaccine is 90% effective at preventing COVID-19. Moderna's vaccine, which operates on similar principles, has produced similar numbers reported by that company as well. To discuss the science behind these developments and what's gonna happen in practice, we are joined by Dr. Paul Offit. He's a professor of vaccinology and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also, importantly, a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Panel. Among his other distinctions, he is also the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. The immediate impetus for our conversation is the good news that mRNA vaccines like Pfizer's and Moderna's shows efficacy in trials. So let's just start with the, the very basic question. The Pfizer vaccine is an mRNA vaccine. There's never been one of those that worked before. Why does this appear to be working? So what we think we know is we think we know that we want to make antibodies to the protein that emanates from the surface of the virus, that it, it's responsible for attaching the virus to cells. If you can then make antibodies to that protein, you can prevent the virus from attaching to cells. In the past, when we've wanted to make antibodies to the spike protein, we would do things like give sort of a whole killed form of the virus, which would have the spike protein on it. Or we would give a live weakened form of the virus, which would have the spike protein on it. Or we would purify the spike protein. Or we would use recombinant DNA technology to make the spike protein. What we're doing now is we're saying, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to take a small gene 
that essentially codes for that spike protein, and then we'll inject that and hope that it gets into muscle cells and that it will then be translated to the spike protein. So in other words, the person makes the spike protein, then the person makes antibodies to the spike protein. We've never done that before. Just like you said, there's no commercial equivalent for that for any vaccine. It, it should theoretically work. We just never knew that it could. That was a spectacularly clear explanation. I want to just dive into a specific part of it. The part I want to dive into is the idea that historically, the way we've done vaccines, and by we, I mean you, the scientific community, is by introducing a version of the spike protein, in this case, that we want to block, and then having the body produce antibodies to it. And that what makes the mRNA approach, which is characteristic of the Pfizer approach and of the Moderna approach, distinctive, is that it actually introduces a genetic code to produce the spike protein, which the body then produces, which we don't want in principle a body to produce, but then the body produces antibodies to the spike protein that the body has produced. So you're saving a step as it were. You don't have to introduce the spike protein in some form from the outside. First of all, am I getting that right? That's exactly right. But if, for example, you gave a live attenuated viral vaccine, that virus would then enter the cell, reproduce itself, and it would make the spike protein inside that cell. So it's not like a complete long shot. And we certainly have a wealth of experience using live weakened viruses to induce the immune response starting in the mid-1930s with uh, the yellow fever vaccine. And is it a good thing that by encoding for the spike protein without introducing the virus, the virus actually doesn't, in principle, have a chance of arising within the cell with this kind of a vaccine, correct? Because we're not encoding for the virus, just encoding for the spike protein. That's right. It's just you're being infected, if you will, with one protein. So that, that's not the virus. That's right. So when we think about potential negative side effects, when we think about uh, live attenuated viruses or killed viruses, sometimes we worry that they might produce, at least in some people, symptoms of the actual virus or the bad consequences of the actual virus. Is it correct to say that at least in principle, the mRNA vaccine can't do that because there is no virus introduced into the system. There's just the genetic code for the spike protein which is okay. not itself the virus. Yeah, this is not SARS-CoV-2 virus. This is just one protein from the virus that you will make. Therefore, the signs and symptoms that you develop will not resemble those of SARS-CoV-2 infection. So one of the best things about an mRNA vaccine, if indeed it works, is that it avoids some of the potential downsides of more traditional vaccination. That's correct, yes. Sometimes it's been said in the media and by the companies that it's easier to produce large numbers of doses of an mRNA vaccine than it is to produce large numbers of doses of a traditional killed or attenuated virus vaccine. Is that so? And if it is so, why is it so? I think there's a couple of advantages for these genetic approaches, these so-called genetic plug and play approaches are fast because they're very easy to construct. You just take the gene, and in the case of mRNA, you give the gene. Or in the case of some of these other so-called viral vectors, you just insert the gene into that viral vector. So it's really very fast to be able to construct it. And then it's very easy to scale up rapidly. So messenger RNA, it's essentially synthetic. You're just manufacturing it. So it can be scaled up very quickly. I mean, I think Pfizer said that they would have 50 million doses by the end of 2020, that they would have 1.3 billion doses in the year 2021. You mentioned the viral vector vaccines, also sometimes called Trojan horse vaccines. The AstraZeneca approach, the Oxford approach is one of those. Could you describe how that works in relationship to the mRNA approach? Right, so it's a little different. So the so-called replication defective 
adenovirus vectors, which is the approach that's being used by Johnson & Johnson, the approach that's being used by AstraZeneca, the approach that's being used by Russia, the approach that's being used by China in part, is the adenovirus is a human virus that can cause a variety of diseases. But by engineering the virus so that it's replication defective, that means that it cannot reproduce itself. That means that it cannot cause disease. But it's also genetically engineered so it has the gene that codes for the spike protein. So then you, you inoculate this replication defective viral vector into the person. It's taken up into muscle cells. And then that replication defective virus enters the cell nucleus, where then that gene that codes for the spike protein is transcribed into messenger RNA. And then the messenger RNA then enters the cytoplasm and then makes the protein. And then you make the protein. So it's sort of like a step back from the messenger RNA strategy, but essentially it's the same strategy. It's ultimately getting the cell to make SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And the reason that it's sometimes called a Trojan horse vaccination approach is that the adenovirus is another virus that does in fact infect the cell, though not with the possibility of replication. And once it's in there, it delivers the genetic code for the spike protein. Exactly right. And then the human body makes the spike protein and then develops the antibodies to it and we're off to the races, as it were. Off to the races. Are those viral vector vaccines just as easy to produce in large numbers of doses as the mRNA vaccine is? Well, the mRNA is, is synthetic at some level, so it's in that sense easier to make. But it can be rapidly scaled up. And there's a lot of experience, actually, with replication-defective adenovirus vectors, which was used, actually, as one of the Ebola vaccines by Johnson & Johnson, the so-called replication-defective adenovirus 26. So millions of doses were administered in West Africa associated with that outbreak. Plus, interestingly, I think many people don't realize this, that product, too, had to be maintained on dry ice. And it was successfully maintained on dry ice in West Africa, because that's going to be also the story with the Pfizer vaccine. So we'll, we'll see how, how this plays out. But there is at least some experience, some commercial experience with this, this approach. I'm glad you raised the temperature issue, which seems like it's going to be an important one going forward. The Pfizer folks are saying that they're vaccine needs to be kept at negative 70 degrees centigrade, which is around 94 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Why does it have to be kept at that cold temperature? So people who work with messenger RNA in a laboratory usually store it in liquid nitrogen, which is like minus 70 to minus 80 degrees centigrade. In order to be able to make sure that that molecule doesn't break down, at least the, the Pfizer construct, you have to ship it and store it at minus 70, which means that for the, the people who are taking care of it, they have to constantly replenish the dry ice, which is a lot to ask. And it gets worse than that. Then what happens is when you thaw it out and you put it in the refrigerator, that concentrated form of messenger RNA can only stay in the refrigerator for 24 hours. After 24 hours, you have to throw it out. Also, if you reconstitute it, and it's just reconstituted with just a normal uh, saltwater solution, after you reconstitute it, you have six hours to give it. So that's a lot to ask. And I think when you do these trials, this 44,000-person trial, you can be sure that the company was very good about making that these study centers that were doing these trials knew exactly how to do it and were good at doing it. When it then gets out into the real world, you worry that people are going to be as good at making sure they, they kept this ultra-cold chain going as we did in the trials and that the efficacy may be a little less in a real-world center because messenger RNA breaks down very quickly. It disintegrates very quickly. And although that would not be an issue, I think, in terms of safety, it would definitely be an issue in terms of potency. Why does it break down so quickly if in the human body, mRNA is tremendously necessary? And of course, the human body is not negative 70 degrees centigrade. 
Right. It does break down quickly in the human body, but you're constantly making messenger RNA and it's constantly breaking down. I mean, one thing that's interesting just from a nerdy virologist standpoint, when you're infected with this virus, you usually shed infectious virus for about a week, meaning, you mm -hmm. know, live virus for about a week. But you can be PCR positive for three months. What's interesting about that is when you're PCR positive, what that means is, is that the, the virus gene is being detected in the back of your throat. So it's not the live virus necessarily. It's just the virus genome. Well, if messenger RNA breaks down so quickly, and it does, why is it that you're positive for three months after you're no longer making infectious virus? I mean, shouldn't the, the mRNA break down very quickly? And the answer is it does. So the only explanation for this is that the virus continues to make messenger RNA, continues to make its genome, but doesn't make whole virus particles, which would be the first virus, at least that I know about, that's ever done something like that. It's just a very strange virus, this bad coronavirus. Can you think of any adaptive advantage genetically for an organism to continue to make its genome, even if it's not making the thing that enables it to spread in the population. That doesn't sound super efficient from a sort of classic evolutionary advantage standpoint. I know. I can't think of a reason, but I, you know what? I'm going to assume the virus is smarter than I am, and it's doing <laughs> it for a reason, because why would it expend the energy that's needed to make messenger RNA unless there was some advantage to its survivability? Fascinating. Of the viral vector vaccines, the ones that Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are producing, will those also have to be kept at a comparable level of coldness? You mentioned that the vaccine that was used in Africa was stored on dry ice, so that's at the same kinds of low temperatures. My understanding is it's they'll be either kept at freezer or refrigerator temperatures, so they're not going to nearly require the kind of issues that are going to be required, at least with the Pfizer vaccine. What's interesting is that the Moderna's vaccine is also an mRNA vaccine, but it doesn't have to be shipped and stored at minus 70 to minus 80. It can be shipped and stored at minus 20 degrees centigrade, which is basically freezer temperature. They're both mRNA vaccines. The gene sequence that determines the so-called receptor binding domain on the uh, SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is identical, but they are different. I mean, Pfizer's vaccine is given at 30 micrograms per dose in two successive doses. Uh, Moderna's is 100 micrograms in two successive doses. And they don't have the same so-called nucleoside analog. So they're not the same molecule. Obviously, there's, there's stability differences, physical chemical differences between those two products. And I'm not sure exactly why, because obviously, I'm sure if Pfizer could ship and store at freezer temperature, which is much more doable, they would. So will that potentially turn out to be a determinative factor for governments that are making specific orders or for healthcare systems that are making specific orders. I mean, I'm sitting in, I don't know, the Massachusetts Department of Health and Human Services, and I'm trying to figure out which one should I buy. Would that be a relevant consideration for me? I'd rather buy the one, for example, that can be shipped at a slightly higher temperature or stored at a slightly higher temperature? You would think that the degree of ease, the degree to which administration and storage is idiot-proof, it would be attractive. What is re currently required for the Pfizer vaccine, which is, you know, that you can't keep it in the refrigerator for more than a day. Once reconstituted, can't be kept for more than, than six hours, that you constantly have to replace with dry ice. I can't imagine how that is going to be done in a large retail pharmacy. I, I can't. I can't imagine how it's going to be done at our hospital, frankly. So, so then how would it be done? One way would be to, to have a series of centers that are distributed throughout a city that are like a testing center, except here that are specifically devoted to giving the vaccine. That would be one way to do it. And that may be the way it's gonna be done. So yes, I think you're exactly right. How operationally are we, we get a vaccine that has these kinds of requirements out there? When you just described that you're not even sure your hospital, which is you know one of the best hospitals in the country and indeed in the world, 
could do it, that actually makes me wonder about viability altogether. I mean, you describe setting up these centers in different cities. That might be all well and good in big cities that have lots of resources, but it sounds like it would be hard to do in lots of parts of the United States and definitely very hard to do in lots of parts of the world where such centers don't exist and would then have to be built from scratch. From the way you formulated it there, I almost thought you were hinting that unless there is no other choice, the Pfizer approach doesn't sound like it's going to be doable at scale. I think it's doable. And I think it's doable at scale. I just think it's going to require an enormous effort. Which means I, an enormous expenditure as well as time. Yes, I think that's right. And, and my understanding is the United States has contracted to buy 100 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine, which means that they could vaccinate 50 million people. Now, the, the number of people that have been considered sort of first tier responders, meaning essential uh, workers like healthcare workers, people in transportation, uh, law enforcement, et cetera, people over 65, people who have certain high-risk medical conditions, added up to about 150 million American adults, which is roughly half the adult population. This vaccine were to be, to be given exclusively, at least for that 100 million doses to the United States, would be about a third of that. So the only way we're going to vaccinate the American population is if there's more than one vaccine. That's going to have to be true. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When I try to picture a center, a newly created center that becomes the vaccination center in a city, I guess we're down with getting into the nitty gritty, but I guess you have to set up appointments for people. You can't have 50 million people lining up and waiting for vaccines. Among other things, they would probably be too proximate to one another and that might spread the virus. Right. And you have to identify whether or not these people really are the first tier for whom the vaccine is recommended, because I think there are a lot of people who are going to get it who are not necessarily in that first tier group. So how do you identify who they are? How do you make sure they come back 21 or 28 days later, depending on the vaccine, so to make sure they got their second dose? 
if you look at Shingrix, which is probably the best equivalent for this, which is an adult vaccine that's given in two doses, roughly separated by a month, what percentage of people come back for that second dose? The answer is it's pretty high. It's about 85% or so, 90%. But still, you know, one out of 10 or more people don't come back for that second dose. Because first of all, the first dose of a shingles vaccine does cause side effects, as these vaccines will, for different reasons. Messenger RNA is an adjuvant. By adjuvant, I mean it stimulates the immune system so that you can give a lesser quantity of the active ingredient. And so you may get that first dose and think, yeah, hey, this wasn't fun. I had fever, including high fever. I had headaches, chills, muscle aches. I'm, I'm not signing up for that second dose, which really is the shingle story. I mean, it's certainly nothing compared to what the benefit is, which is preventing a disease that could kill you. So uh, it's certainly worth it. But it, it, you know, for some people, they may think, you know, I'm young and healthy. I'm probably not going to die from this. Do I really have to go back for that second dose? This wasn't much fun. The fact that um, mRNA it can be used as an adjuvant, namely something that stimulates your immune system, does that mean that a high percentage of the population who takes the vaccine will have those kinds of quasi-flu-like symptoms in response to taking the vaccine? Yes, I think that's right. I think probably as much as half of people will have fever, including high fever, and then the symptoms associated with fever, headache, chills, muscle aches. I think that's likely. And how long do those symptoms typically last when you've administered just an adjuvant? A day or two. I mean, it, it'll go away. Again, so people I, will know they'll know they don't have COVID because they've just taken the vaccine, but they may be a little nervous about it. Well, the same thing actually applies for the vaccine trials. In theory, the participant doesn't know whether they're getting vaccine or placebo, but because the mRNA vaccines, and actually also true for the replication defective adenovirus vaccines for a different reason, that too had a fairly high side effect profile. So if you didn't have side effects, you probably did have a placebo. And if you did have side effects, you probably did have the uh, vaccine. So most people probably do know which they got. Interesting. Interesting. The second question I wanted to ask about that scenario is if 150 million people aren't being described as first responders, and as you say, that's half of the U.S. adult population, then on some level, that first responder categorization isn't that meaningful. And it's going to have to be more narrowed down, especially if, let's say, we have 50 million doses to begin with. And even among that, there's the question of the order in which it will be given. Do you have a view about what would be plausible ways to narrow it down beyond that? Or do you think that the governments involved are just going to duck the issue because it's so difficult to do allocation processes like this in a way that seems fair to people. I think you're exactly right. I think it is going to be difficult to do that, but I don't think they're going to duck the issue. I think both the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices to the CDC and the National Academy of Medicine, which have been charged with trying to figure out exactly how these tiers are going to work out, who's in the top, top tier, who's just below that top tier, they won't duck it. The question is how it then is going to play out in the real world when the rubber meets the road. And we'll see. I'm sure that, that uh, healthcare workers will be right up at the top, as will uh, people who are older. In terms of like people who are over 65, we do need data to prove that the vaccine is effective in that age group. Hopefully, we'll have enough people in these Pfizer trials or Moderna trials, which are going to be the first ones to go through the FDA. We'll have enough data to be able to make that statement. Because although you know, obviously you want to make sure that both genders are equally represented. You want to make sure that there's an adequate representation of racial and ethnic minorities. There's no reason to believe that there would be really differences in the ability to respond with the exception of someone older and people who have various medical conditions like, you know, say obesity or diabetes. So that needs to be clearer as we do this. I thought of that specifically because I heard an interview on the radio with one of the Pfizer spokespeople who was asked, you know, of your 44,000 people in your trial, were there elderly people? And the spokesperson responded by saying, the trial group was demographically broad. 
which was not a direct answer. And of course, it didn't say anything about whether the 90% efficacy level is, you know, uh, nearly 100% of young people are finding it working and a very substantial number of older people are not discovering that it works. Do you have an instinct about that? I mean, would it be ordinarily the case that if you looked at a natural variation across a population, that older people would have a much harder time having the vaccine effectively generate successful protections for them just because their immune systems are less responsive as they get older? Yes, and that, that's the flu story. I mean, influenza vaccine works, you know, it's about 60 to 65% effective in, say, people less than 18 years of age, but it's barely effective in people over 65. On the other hand, the shingles vaccine in those over 70, 80 years old works extremely well. So there are horses for courses, as, as they say at the track. I think we'll find that there are vaccines that may work well in one group, but not another. And, and I thought, I, you, I thought that the press release was pretty cagey. I think it made a statement that they had X number of people over 55, but it's really over 65 that you care about. And I'm not just saying that because I'm over 65. Okay, I am saying that because I'm over 65, but um, you know, you can't forget about us. <laughs> well, I don't think anyone is gonna forget about people over 65 in the context of responding to a disease where most of the people whom it has killed were not just over 65, but, but over 70 or over 75. I think people are gonna be extremely concerned about this. I guess this is the answer then we just have, because of your horses for courses point, there's just no way we're gonna know anything about this until we see the data. We can't assume what it's gonna look like. The challenges here, if you look at that 44,000 person trial, and then you look at the instance of infection, it's actually much less than you would have predicted based on what the uh, instances uh, of outbreaks were as these trials were progressing which makes you wonder whether the people who were participants, because they may be more attentive to their health, were more likely to wear a mask, more likely to social distance, and therefore less likely to have been infected than an otherwise group. In other words, if, as, as compared to if they say did the trials with bikers in Sturgis, South Dakota, who no, didn't wear masks, or you know people who go to the Trump rallies or go to Rose Garden ceremonies, you know that you'd be more likely to have a higher rate of, of infections. And that matters because Masks aren't 100% effective. And so it may be that you were exposed to a lesser inoculum than someone who was less careful about their care. And, and you know, there's definitely an inoculum effect. The greater the inoculum, the more likely to have moderate to severe disease. So there's a lot to work out. I, I don't think we're going to work a lot of it out before these vaccines are already introduced because we have 240,000 people that died of this virus this year. You're not going to do huge long-term trials. You're not. And there's going to be, whenever you do subsets, there's always going to be a loss of statistical strength. And so you're just going to take your best guess. I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. These are the questions that are going to come before us probably in the next few weeks when we're asked to approve these products through EUA. And I think we're going to be looking to approve both Pfizer and Moderna soon. And the other thing is, I think, although 94 cases was reported by uh, Pfizer in this press release, my sense was they're going to have at least 160 by the time that, that our committee looks at this, and it may be also drew for Moderna. So just to clarify, the EUA is the emergency use authorization. Your committee is a crucial step because the head of the FDA has said they're not going to issue an emergency use authorization unless your committee says, go for it. So you're an important choke point in, in that structure. When you talk about the number 94 or the number 160, clarify what that number refers to for us. Right. So what uh, Pfizer said in their press release is that they had 94 illnesses among participants and that the vaccine was 90% effective, roughly. So we don't really know the numbers yet, but let's make them up. Let's assume then that there were 86 cases in the placebo group and eight cases in the vaccine group. So that would be 90% protection. And just to clarify, that's out of 44,000 people, 
22,000 of whom got the vaccine, 22,000 of whom did not get the vaccine, because it has to have been evenly divided, right? At least that's normal practice. That's right. So of 44,000 people, 22,000 get the vaccine, eight of them get sick, roughly, on this reconstruction, and only 86 people get the virus of 22,000 people who are not vaccinated. I mean, that is stunningly small degree of number of people, isn't it? Yes, Weirdly that, small. That's why I sort of had mentioned before that they may be much more likely to protect themselves by other means because we're not helpless here. I mean, hygienic measures do work. So that maybe that's what's going on. If that were true, if your hypothesis were correct, then maybe this vaccine is a lot less than 90% effective. That's that's a good point. I think it was your point. I didn't mean for it to be my point. <laughs> good. Well, then, yeah, I agree with my point. Let's assume just theoretically that there were eight people in the vaccine group who got sick. Those are the people you learn the most from because you'll know whether or not they had an immune response, what you thought was going to be an adequate immune response to the vaccine. If they didn't, if they had didn't have a very good neutralizing antibody response, i.e. an antibody response that neutralized uh, virus infectivity, then you may have an immunological marker. You can say that, look, if you don't have this sort of level of immunity in response to the vaccine, you may not be protected. On the other hand, they may have had a perfectly adequate uh, neutralizing antibody response, in which case you can say that maybe the immune response that we thought was associated with protection isn't clearly associated with protection. And then it's a matter of looking at who those people were that got sick. Were they more likely to be over 65? Did they have other healthcare problems? Were they of a particular racial or ethnic background? That's where you learn the most, is the people that got the vaccine and still got sick. Should we, on the more positive front, have a pretty good indication of the lack of bad side effects if 22,000 people have gotten the, the vaccine? Because presumably, if there were any really meaningfully bad side effects, we would have seen them in this population. That's right. And if you look historically at, at uh, sort of the bad side effects that have been associated with vaccines, whether it's sort of polio from the oral polio vaccine or so-called viscerotropic disease, which is to say yellow fever following the yellow fever vaccine, or Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is this ascending paralysis that occurs very rarely after flu vaccine, and all of which are extremely rare. And they all occur really within six weeks of getting a dose. So in the way these trials are now being set up is that uh, you can't get an EUA unless you follow at least half of the population who was vaccinated at least two months after dose two. So what that'll tell you is that, at least as far as you know, that you don't have a relatively uncommon severe side effect. But 20,000 people isn't 20 million people. I Once you put the vaccine out there and it's in 20 million people, there may be a very rare side effect that occurs in, say, one in a million people or one in 500,000 people that you're not going to pick up pre-approval. But the good news is there are systems in place like the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System or like the Vaccine Safety Data Link, which will pick that up and have picked that up in, in the past. So I think people can be reassured that you're looking. Remember, a choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk-free choice. It's just a choice to take a different risk. And the question is, when do you know enough to say that I think that we have mitigated a critical amount of risk associated with this vaccine? Should I feel better, say, as an over 65-year-old, that 10,000 people or 5,000 people or 3,000 people have been vaccinated with the vaccine safely, knowing that if I get infected with this virus, I have a higher chance of dying. It's always a matter of risk benefit. And I don't think people see it that way. They think that I'm just going to take the conservative thing and I'm just going to wait. And, you know, while you're waiting, you may get infected. Now, as, as you wait, more and more people will get vaccinated. And then you have a much bigger platform in which to say, look, I, I think there really isn't a safety issue here. But while you wait, you might suffer the consequences. You've just replicated a conversation I have had with my parents recently, who are definitely over 65. And so I want to ask you, if you're willing to share, what your view is of the cost-benefit here. I mean, my takeaway, and this is what I said to my parents, 
is that because you're in an age group, and they also live in New York, where if you were to become infected, your health outcomes are not great, even with the new treatments that are available. I mean, I said it more bluntly like that. I said, you know, if you're infected and you're over this age, the danger that you could become sick and even die is really very high. Therefore, I argued, being conservative and waiting in this instance would make no sense at all measured by cost benefit, because although it's nice in general to be cautious about healthcare, in this instance, the side effects have not been shown to be particularly bad. And if they were in existence, they would be of tiny probability. And it would be a very, very, very minuscule probability that you could be so ill as to die from those side effects. Whereas if you get the virus, the possibilities are much greater. So that was my argument. I'm wondering, was I right? I mean, I hope I was right, but if I wasn't, I, I wanna know that so I can take it back. Um, what would you say to someone in that situation? No, I agree with you completely. I think that's exactly the argument. You know, when you do vaccine trials, you go from phase one trials of 20 to 100 people to phase two trials of several hundred people to phase three trials of tens of thousands of people. Every time you do that, you mitigate risk. You lessen the risk. Um, but you never eliminate the risk. You never know everything. I mean, one of the real dangers here is that we could have a scenario where we have a pretty darn good vaccine that's pretty darn safe, and yet there's some significant part of the population that refuses to take it. I think what's going to happen, because this vaccine is not going to be recommended for the general population initially, it'll be recommended for certain groups like healthcare workers and transportation workers, et cetera. Those groups will start to get that vaccine. And then you'll see millions of people have been vaccinated. And then you'll see that they're happy they've been vaccinated, that there's no serious side effect. You may start to see incidents of cases and hospitalizations and deaths start to decrease. And people will see that the vaccine is having a positive effect. And that, I think, would assure people that there doesn't seem to be a problem and they'll be more and more confident in getting the vaccine over time. So that's the happy story. And I desperately hope that you're right. One of the reasons I always think that anti-vaccination people manage to have the effect that they do have is that they're often free riding. You know, that in effect, there are some diseases that are the prevalence of which is so low as a result of broad vaccination that some people say, well, I'm not gonna get the vaccine and watch, I'm not gonna get sick. And they might not get sick because the vaccine has effectively reduced the prevalence of the disease such that they're not very likely to be exposed. Is there a danger of that kind of a perceived free rider effect? if the first responders and others and healthcare workers get the vaccine, if numbers start to go down, and then some people say, well, now that it's going down, I don't need to be vaccinated. I mean, we, we eliminated measles in the United States by the year 2000. It's come back because a critical number of parents have chosen not to vaccinate their children for just that reason. I think they figure, what the hell? Everybody around me is being vaccinated. Why should I take the risk? And I'll still be protected. When enough people make that decision, then the, the virus thrives. And you had a handful of children who were in the intensive care unit in, in New York hospitals because of severe measles, because the parents had made the, the decision to frankly put their children at unnecessary risk. And, you know, you are a member of society. I don't think it's your right to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. I think you owe it not only to yourself or to your children eventually, but to the people with whom you come in contact, remembering that there's 500,000 people in this country who can't be vaccinated. They can't be vaccinated because they're getting cancer chemotherapy. And in some instances now, they're not, not going to be vaccinated because they're too young. They can't be vaccinated because they're getting biologicals for their chronic diseases. So um, do you have a responsibility to them? But the answer is yes. Uh, I mean, in our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, every year we ask our healthcare workers to get a, a flu vaccine, not just healthcare workers, anybody who could walk in the room, dietary, environmental services, anybody, because you are working in a hospital of vulnerable children, and it is therefore your responsibility to make sure that you protect them. Well, you could make the same argument in society. 
as a member of society, it's your obligation to protect those around. Could you just say a word about the half a million people who we can't vaccinate and what the reasons are why it's not safe for them to have the vaccine? 500,000 people in this country are receiving biologicals, you know, things like uh, monoclonal antibodies because they have chronic diseases, because they have psoriasis or arthritis or whatever. And a lot of people are on chemotherapy for cancer. They too can't get vaccines because it wouldn't work in them because their immune systems are suppressed. Some people are born with immune systems that don't work. So that involves about 500,000 people in this population of roughly uh, 330 million. And they depend on the herd. They depend on those around them to protect them. And when the herd says, I don't care about you, they're the ones who are often the first to suffer these diseases. Last but not least, what's it going to feel like in the room when your committee meets? What does it usually feel like when your committee meets? I guess it'll be virtual because of COVID. Well, we've never had a meeting like this. I mean, normally, what does it feel like in the room? Normally, it's it's a group of, of sort of you know, nerdy virologists like myself sitting around talking about what flu strains we're going to pick for the vaccines for next year. So we haven't, at least in the last couple of years, licensed a new vaccine. That's going to be what's happening here. And, and it's open to the public. Anybody can come to those meetings. But if you went to our flu meeting, you'd be bored to death, most likely. It's, we don't have big crowds there. On the other hand, when we had our first meeting uh, of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee regarding these vaccines, it was on October 22nd, just to see what uh, criteria we would be happy with for approving a vaccine under emergency use authorization. And that was televised. I mean, that was on uh, C-SPAN because there was a lot of interest in seeing it. And here again, when we meet, and I suspect we're going to meet in December, and I suspect we're going to be meeting more than once in December and January, that too will be televised. And uh, people can have public comment because that's true of any federal advisory committee meeting. Those have to be open to the public, which is great because I think then the public will see the data in the same way we see the data. So it shouldn't be an, an issue of transparency. Paul, I just want to thank you for your important work. Wish you luck in these meetings. And really, I just deeply appreciate the clarification and the listeners do too. So thank you. Thank you very much. That was fun. I appreciate it. I learned many fascinating things in the course of my conversation with Dr. Offit. The first had to do with the basic science, which we've talked about before on this podcast. To me, the takeaway here is that mRNA vaccines like Pfizer's and Moderna's do not pose the traditional risk of actually infecting people with the virus because they're not introducing the virus at all into the human system. That seems like a very positive fact. Simultaneously, it is true that these vaccines may have the side effect on many people of giving them 24 hours of fever and chills. And we need to be aware of that and recognize that that will not be a symptom of COVID. To the contrary, it's a symptom that the vaccine is actually doing its work. Another crucial takeaway is that the difficulty of delivering at least the Pfizer vaccine, which has to be stored at 70 degrees below zero centigrade, will be very significant. The practical difficulty of administering a vaccine that has to be kept so cold is going to require, according to Dr. Offit, the development of new delivery systems and potentially even new facilities for doing this. mRNA vaccines can be produced extremely fast, but their distribution is going to be a more subtle matter. A further consequence of my conversation with Dr. Offit is that I learned that there are half a million people in the United States, I didn't know that number, who are not able to take a vaccine of any kind, and therefore are dependent on the rest of us to make sure that we take the vaccine to reduce the prevalence of the virus and to protect them via protection of the herd. Last, but by no means least, is Dr. Offit's assessment that if the data turn out to be what we've heard from the press release, 
the cost-benefit analysis will indicate clearly that people should take the vaccine and that that will be especially true of older people who would be very vulnerable to serious, serious illness and even death should they catch the SARS-CoV-2 virus. For me and for my family, that takeaway is hugely significant, and I intend to repeat it to anyone who will listen. We at Deep Background will be taking a Thanksgiving break, so we won't have an episode for you next week, but we will be back after Thanksgiving. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.